Well, the circumstances under which I left the Beach Boys band were, you know, many-fold. I was just um, a 15-year-old and making my own business decisions, which was not a good idea. friends, this is Wyatt Funderburk here in Nashville, Tennessee. You're listening to the Sail On Podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful assistant and co-host, Jason Brewer. Hello, everyone. What a great day to be a Beach Boys fan. Is there a bad day to be a Beach Boys fan? Well, maybe. (laughs) So... We're back with another episode. Today we have a very special voicemail uh, to play for you guys that we got a few days ago, and it was very exciting. So I'll just play it for you, and we'll talk about it afterwards. Hi, uh, this is Steve Desper calling, and uh, Professor Mike Connor turned me on to your your January 8th posting on Murray Wilson, and... uh, Wanted me to answer a question, I guess. It was in the broadcast. Uh, Murray came around during Friends uh, once in a while, but for the most part, the most I ever saw of him was either in the office, in the Beach Boy office over in Ivar in Hollywood, or uh, else uh, at the studio. And um, really, uh, all I have to say about Murray Wilson that uh, I, I said in my, uh, my post on... SWDstudyvideos.com. It's my website. And if you go to that, SWDstudyvideos.com, you may have already done it because I see the music here is by Will C. And he and I work together to make that one. You'll find on page three there of my website a, a button marked Breakaway. And if you push that and follow the instructions with the passcodes, I break down breakaway uh, on that particular um, button. I take breakaway. I, I recorded breakaway, so I take it and break it all down from an engineering point of view and uh, sort of from a musical point of view too, and give examples. And uh, I think if you go there and check it out, I think you'd find it most interesting uh, to see if you like breakaway a lot or you know, see it from the, the engineer's point of view. And or some fun things that go on there. Uh, that's uh, as well. Will C did a wonderful job on that one. Uh, it's uh, one of many that are on that website. You might want to check the rest of them out. Anyway, uh, it's uh, Steve Jasper calling and uh, enjoyed what you had to say on your Mary uh, Wilson episode. And uh, I guess I'll talk to you later. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. How incredible to have the guy who recorded maybe my favorite consecutive run of Beach Boys records call our show. What a great engineer. What do you think, Wyatt? I was thrilled when I listened to that voicemail. Stephen Desper was the engineer of several wonderful Beach Boys albums, 
in the late 60s and early 70s and um, engineered some of my favorite records as well as Jason's and has some fantastic insight. Uh, we're going to follow up with him and try and get an interview for you guys at some point. So stay tuned for that. Um, but it's super cool to hear from Stephen Desper. He's an idol of mine. And um, Stephen, thank you very much. If you're listening to this, we, we'd love to hear from you again. And um, we'd love to talk to you in the future. Absolutely. What a great thrill to have you call us, Stephen. I've been studying and listening to things that you've engineered since I was a teenager. So uh, can't wait to dive more into that. So... Moving on from that, we have a voicemail from a listener who has called in before. You guys may remember his name is Sean Franklin. Hey guys, this is uh, Sean Franklin. I called into the to leave a message before. Uh, anyway, I just listened to the Murray Wilson episode, which I thought was amazing, and I just wanted to share a few cool things. Um, when I got when, <laughs> when I got married, we actually used. Um, Islands in the Sky off Many Moods and Murray Wilson for our wedding reception. <laughs> like, my brother might have known the song, and that was about it. Like, no one else even knew what it was. Friends is my favorite Beach Boys album of all time. And I actually didn't know Murray, a.k.a. Reggie Dunbar, was still involved. And uh, this, is, this is really cool. Years ago, um, I had Stephen Desper sign a bunch of my stuff. And uh, in the packet of stuff I sent, I had The Flames' first album on CD, the cover. But I didn't realize that it was like a like an unauthorized release. So he actually held on to the cover, and I didn't get my stuff back for a long time, but he actually held on to the cover to show Brother Records they should actually release this because people are bootlegging it and stuff like that. And then I finally got my stuff back in the mail, and uh, as a, you know, kind of like, uh, I'm sorry your stuff is so late, he actually had a 2020 Arab homo photo signed by all of them. So it was Dennis, Mike... Al, Carl, and Bruce, and it was all signed in pen. So that is really sick. So the first autograph I saw was Dennis, and I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. But anyway, I completely love the show, and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Sean, that is indeed sick. That's pretty neat that you used the Islands in the Sky tune as part of your wedding ceremony. That's some serious, serious Beach Boys dedication. We like that around here. Oh, yeah. And that's one of my favorite Murray Wilson tunes. So thanks for calling in. Thanks for sharing. We've got another voicemail for you today from Chuck Hayes. Hey, guys. Chuck Hayes here in Southern California. Just listened to the Roger Christian podcast as I was driving up Surf Route 101 Pacific Coast Highway. I'm in uh, Redondo Beach right now, looking out over the waves, and I want to say congratulations on all the great work. Great to hear your passion and love for Brian's music and the Beach Boys, of course. And uh, we'll continue to listen and uh, appreciate all the hard work and insight that you bring. Uh, Surf's up. Sail on sailor. Talk to you later. Chuck, we're so glad that we were able to soundtrack your trek to surf route 101 today i say this every time we get one of these great encouraging voicemails and i mean it just as much every time that you know the reason we do this podcast is so that people like chuck and all you other great listeners who call in write in 
just dial us up every time we got a new episode out. You guys are why we do it. It's just exciting to connect with you. So, you know, keep calling in, keep writing. We'll keep making the episodes. Yep. Thank you guys for calling. Uh, We've been getting some great emails and voicemails over the last few weeks. So hit us up. Our voicemail number is 615-606-3887. Our email address is saleonpodcast at gmail.com. So speaking of people, you know, listening to the podcast and giving us feedback, this weekend um, our tribute band played a gig for the first time since we started the podcast. And I was curious to see if we would have anybody from the podcast listeners show up at the gig. And uh, we played a gig in Selma, North Carolina, which is just outside Raleigh. Very small, quaint, but um, sweet, charming little town. And um, after the show, we were meeting and greeting some folks. And a gentleman came up to me named Paul, who said that he is a podcast listener and found out about the band and the show from the podcast. And I think that really made my day. And I was really, really pumped to see someone in person that has been enjoying these little talks that me and Jason are having. So thanks, Paul, if you're listening. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming to the show and being so kind. And we'll we'll see you again next time we're in your neck of the woods. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul. Just amazing the way we're able to connect with people through the podcast and through the tribute band. But um, thanks again, Paul. Uh, look forward to catching you again when we're back in North Carolina. Yeah, and you know, started this kind of uh, as a way to express our love for the Beach Boys. Um, so we're looking forward to kind of extending that to more people as we keep going. And if you do listen to the podcast and we're playing in your area, let us know. Come see us. Say hi. Uh, we'd love to meet you. And if we have time, we'd love to hang out and talk. And uh, nerd out about our favorite band it'd be great to connect with more and more of you guys through all the cities we're going to this year please go to our website saleonsounds.com look at the dates send us a message ahead of time and say hey i've been listening to the podcast i'm going to be there and i got great stuff to talk about or you have beef with me because i gave something a one that you're ticked off about (laughs) any of that stuff just uh you know, let us know ahead of time or surprise us either way. Yeah, we uh, we we had a couple months off and it was good to get back on the road. And we're hoping to integrate some of that touring experience with you guys. I'm not really sure how yet. So if you guys have any ideas or things you'd like to hear about from our tribute bands, touring experiences and um, performing Beach Boys songs, let me know if I can get some good recordings of us playing then maybe we can play some of that on the air but um you know we don't really want to make it about us it's all about you know celebrating the beach boys so that's right you guys tell us if it's uh it's something you're interested in we'd love to to share it with you otherwise just come see us play it'll be a lot of fun speaking of which we have a few shows coming up that's right wyatt on february 3rd we're playing in dahlonega georgia at the holly theater which is a great room And then February 23rd, we'll be in Pensacola, Florida at the Imogene Theater. And then February 25th, we'll be playing in Tampa, Florida at Skipper's Smokehouse. I'm pretty pumped about that one. I've heard it's quite an interesting venue. Um, So those are some of our upcoming ones. 
and you know connect with us if you're going to be coming out or just drop us a line saying where we should play that's cool too yeah and you can follow along with us on social media as well you can find us on facebook and you can find us on instagram as sail on sounds and we're on twitter as well under sail on sounds so follow along again let us know if you'd like to see or hear anything from our tribute band Um, otherwise we're going to keep doing what we're doing and talking about the beach boys and this week we're going to be talking about one of the most important people in the beach boys dynasty and that is david lee marks you're going to play Foskett saying that, right? Please <laughs> welcome from Hawthorne, California, the original Beach Boys, David Lee Mark. So one thing that uh, we did this weekend while we were on the road heading down to North Carolina and back, I recently bought The Lost Beach Boy, which is a book that was written by John Stebbins with David Marks. And I've been kind of slacking. I hadn't read this book yet, and I just couldn't find it. So I finally um, found a used copy online and got it this week and crushed the book in a few days. So I'm like full of all this juicy information about David Marks and his life that I didn't know before. So it's pretty exciting stuff. I definitely recommend checking out the book. Um, Thanks very much, John Stebbins, for writing such a great book, along with David. And we really appreciate, you know, the Dennis Wilson book you wrote as well. And um, love it. I know Jason really loves the Beach Boys FAQ yeah, book. Yeah, that, that book rocks. So we're gonna we're gonna start carrying a little miniature Beach Boys library on the road with us, killer, as we trek across the USA in our new. 12 passenger van named Diane. So, this week talking about David Marks. So, if you guys don't know, David Marks was born August 22nd, 1948 in Pennsylvania, and his family relocated to Hawthorne, California when he was 7 years old, and he lived right across the street from the Wilson brothers. As a kid, he encountered the Wilson brothers for the first time when somebody across the street was throwing garbage at him and uh, it was Carl and Dennis Wilson kind of yelling at him and, you know, just playful banter. And uh, he and Dennis and Carl became good friends. And uh, David and Carl began playing guitar at a pretty young age. I think David was about 10 years old. And they both were big fans of rock and roll, Chuck Berry records especially, and um, they both started taking guitar lessons from John Mouse, who lived in the neighborhood as well. And he always kind of looked up to Brian because he was a good bit older. And he would often uh, hide in the Wilson's music room while Brian was dissecting four freshman records. Yeah. And picking the needle up and down and listening to note by note and picking out all the parts on his piano. And it really fascinated David as a youngster because he had only known Brian really from school like as a really great athlete and a and a very you know cool guy and he thought it was really bizarre that he was in this room 
playing these first three or four notes over the, over and over again on his turntable, and it didn't really make a lot of sense to him at the time. That had to have been fascinating to see, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, so as we've already discussed in a earlier episode, the Beach Boys started off with Al Jardine playing bass and singing with the boys because he was a good friend of Brian's and uh, they didn't really think much about David as being a group member. But when Al finally decided that this band wasn't for him, they reluctantly agreed that David was the best replacement. So they brought in young David Marks, who was only 13 years old at the time. So crazy. To play rhythm guitar along with the boys. And David wasn't on the very first recording, which was Surfin', but he was on the Surfin' Safari LP. And you can definitely hear him playing rhythm guitar on that record throughout the entire record. So it's pretty mm-hmm. special. And he had yeah. a very, uh, you know, kind of hard edge style. And uh, he played with a lot of guts. Murray, the Wilson's father, was not a big fan of David and really didn't ever want David to be playing lead guitar. So he made it a rule as such that Carl was the only one who was allowed to play lead guitar on records. That's crazy. But David did manage to sneak in a few lead parts. If you listen to the end of Shutdown, you can hear David playing some Chuck Berry-style riffs during the fade out, which I think is an awesome little way to sneak in some lead playing. <laughs> it's interesting how they bring David in and kind of just immediately try to limit him to only what, you know, Murray thought he was good for. Um, obviously, he was showing favoritism to Carl, but. I don't know, just really interesting because I feel like Al probably would not have gotten the same treatment. So David's guitar playing can be heard on all the singles that the Beach Boys released in 62, 63. So Surfing Safari, 409, Surfing USA, Shut Down, Surfer Girl, In My Room, and Be True to Your School. So lots of big, big songs. Totally. And um, I think, you know, just generally speaking, not a lot of people even know that he was a beach boy now i think it gets glossed over um, a lot of times and that he was thought of as just a temporary replacement for al but i don't think al really thought that he was going to be coming back until brian decided that he really didn't want to be touring anymore and they brought back al to replace brian that in murray's eyes was a great reason to kind of get rid of David and Murray pushed David in my opinion just over the edge on tour because he would find him every time he cursed and every time he was caught drinking or was out late as their tour manager he would take money out of his proceeds and at the end of one of the tours he said there was no money left because he had broken the rules too many times Wow, And I think Murray pushed him too far one day and David just decided that he was going to quit the band and he yelled, I quit. And Murray said, did you hear that? Everyone, David quit. David's no longer in the band. Even though David felt like he may have made a mistake in quitting, he still was very cocky and had a lot of pride and didn't want to back down from his decision. 
he fulfilled his contract and played a couple more months um, towards the end of 1963. He actually was rehearsing songs for the Shutdown Volume 2 LP, but I don't think he ever made it to any of the sessions. By the end of the year, he was out of the band and replaced full-time by Al Jardine on rhythm guitar, and Brian was back in the touring lineup full-time. There seems to be a fan... Uh, misconceptions the term I'd like to use here and there's a fan misconception that Al and David kind of had bad blood because it was viewed that Al was taking over for David which in a sense he was but if we really bring it back to what you just mentioned really Al was coming in to take Brian's place not replace David right and Brian Al was still not a full-time member of the band until David left as Al was just kind of this, you know, hired gun, if you will, um, mm-hmm. that went on tour and was a very talented singer, so he could take Brian's place, and they would really still be able to play the songs like they were playing them. And I've seen a lot of people refer to Al as the reluctant Beach Boy because of this, and I think that's kind of an interesting way to frame it. I don't know if I agree with that at all, but it's very interesting that he was viewed that way early on, which obviously he seemed like he was indecisive, but I don't know if it was necessarily warranted uh, a labeling. David was just very, very young. I mean, he was 15 years old when he left the Beach Boys, and he had already crazy kind of been burnt out by the whole touring as a rock star experience. He had gotten into tons of trouble doing, you know, all sorts of illegal activities. Um, if you're more interested in the more raunchy activities, then please check out John Stebbins' book because this is a clean podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Clean cast. Yeah, this is clean, but the book has some dirty stuff in it, um, which is very its very interesting. I'll just put it that way. But um, they definitely got around in 1963, and uh, for a 14-year-old and 15-year-old boy, it was you know, just way beyond what he was emotionally ready for. And I think it got the best of him. And he had a confidence that was a little bit unwarranted, I think, and um, felt like he didn't need the band anymore and he was going to do his own thing. So he did walk away from the Beach Boys at age 15, just before the Beach Boys really hit their peak. He actually formed his own band, called The Marksmen, with some friends of his, most notably drummer Mark Grossclose, who went to school with Carl Wilson and uh, actually filled in for Dennis on a few shows when Dennis was in a car accident. Interesting. But this was more of a sort of garage band, and, man, they had a song that uh, I really dig, an instrumental song called sheriff of nottingham and this song is just super tough instrumental surf rock super ripping
The debut single by The Marksman was actually booked at Western 3 and engineered by Chuck Britz of Beach Boys fame. And it also featured the Honeys on backing vocals. So lots of little, you know, ex-Beach Boy references here already. Mm -hmm. Um, His past is definitely evident here. And while he walked away from the Beach Boys, he was definitely using those connections to kind of catapult him and his solo career, if you will, into fame. The song Custom Car Show was actually one that he played for Brian when they were putting together the Little Deuce Coop album. And Brian said that he wasn't ready yet as a songwriter. And I would agree. I think David as a songwriter and as a singer at this point just wasn't really matured. And the material just isn't there yet. There's nothing more exciting than the sparkle of gold Like on a picnic band and with a clear glass dome And there's a place downtown where you can see them all Where you can browse all night and really have a ball And it's a custom car show And it's a custom car show Can't think of any other place that I would rather be Than a custom car show You see the serpent goodies and the juice good goodies At the custom car show I think you're definitely spot on about, you know, their instrumental prowess, especially on the Sheriff of Nottingham tune. Just totally rocking, ripping, right in the world of Dick Dale and the Ventures. I mean, it's up there with uh, that stuff for sure. I think a lot of surf musicologists out there have a lot of high regard for that particular tune just because of the playing on it. He's definitely... Got a long way to grow, but definitely there's potential. Obviously, he probably learned, picked up a lot of things from being in the Beach Boys and working with those guys, and um, you know, he just wanted to kind of fit in. So one interesting thing around the same time as the Marksman stuff we were just jamming and checking out. In February of 1964, David got a phone call from Paul Revere, from Paul Revere and the Raiders. And um, 
you know, he kind of knew stuff about that group. They were starting to get big on the West Coast, and they were a really hard-working band. They were kind of like a party band at first and kind of grew into being kind of a gimmicky rock band with some great rock and roll sounds. Yeah, David just couldn't picture himself wearing the colonial uniforms that Paul Revere and the Raiders wore. So for that reason alone, he turned them down, which I think was another missed opportunity. This was also the same month that the Beatles kind of took over America. So it was an interesting time for all these American bands because they were basically buried under a mountain of Beatlemania and everyone had to kind of figure out what to do next. How do we get out of this? How do we survive this British invasion? And the Beach Boys did it by writing and releasing a song called I Get Around. And unfortunately, David Marks and the Marksmen could not find success during this time. So although David and Murray kind of had a falling out, Murray and the Beach Boys also had a falling out, as you guys may know, as Brian fired Murray as their manager. After that, Murray was on a mission to find a way to remain in the music business and find the next big group. He offered David a job in the Sunrays, and David turned it down. But he did enlist David and Glenn Campbell to be the session guitarists for some Sunrays tunes, including this one called Out of Gas. I've been washing the windows and cutting the lawn and wild. I think it's interesting that, in a way, he and Murray come full circle here with the sun rays. Because, you know, as we've discussed in previous episodes, Murray and David and David's parents seem to always butt heads and be at odds with each other. But I feel like, you know, Murray must have had a lot of respect for his playing because, I mean, on all those early records that he played on, that Murray was uh, there for a lot of the studio with that. And it's pretty interesting that he's like, man, Marks gets the sound that I want to, you know, have on these Sunrays records. I got to get him in here. So I think that's pretty great. Yeah, he knew that he needed to replicate that Beach Boys guitar sound. So who better than session guitarist Glenn Campbell and former Beach Boy David Marks. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great idea. I can't go wrong out of gas, out of gas, having no fun. When I get my wheels on the trophy run, making money now, making money now, working hard now, working hard now, waiting to see now, waiting to see now, won't be long now, won't be long now, making money now, David's next project was called The Band With No Name, which he joined with his pal 
as we remember, the drummer of the Marksman, Mark Grossclose. They were also joined by Casey Kasem's nephew, and Casey Kasem actually managed the band. Um, They were signed by Mike Curb to Tower Records, and they appeared in a teen genre flick called Thunder Alley. Awesome. But David had left the band by that time. (laughs) So another missed opportunity. I think that's basically three now, Um, which is kind of a theme of David's life and career as a musician. All these missed or turned down opportunities. A cool story uh, from the John Stebbins, David Marks book that I really loved from 1965. Um, One night he went over to Brian Wilson's house for a party and all the Beach Boys were there and some of his old friends. And um, he was feeling nostalgic and he walked out onto the patio and um, Dennis Wilson came outside and kind of could tell that he was, you know, having a hard time being around all those guys. And Dennis asked him if he was okay. And David said that he clearly remembers saying that he was fine, but part of him wanted to say that he wanted back in the group, even though he didn't really. So that's him again, you know, struggling with being out of the Beach Boys and out of the spotlight, but also being too proud to admit that he missed it or that he wanted to be part of it again. Yeah. Um, It was that night that Brian Wilson played him what he said were unfinished Pet Sounds instrumentals. Um, and uh, I'm guessing what he played played for him was Sleep John B. Yep. And uh, that was when David realized that he needed to completely disconnect from the Beach Boys because he just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, sitting down with Brian, who you had a previous, you know, musical and working and friendship and all that stuff with and him sitting down and playing you sloop john b it just had to probably just completely eat away at his soul man that's tough On January 3rd, 1966, the Beach Boys were awarded gold records for both the Surfin' USA and Surfer Girl albums. And there was a ceremony taking place at Capitol Tower. And gold plaques were handed out to Brian, Dennis, Carl, Mike, and Al. Incredibly, David wasn't even notified. I thought this was a huge oversight because not only did Dave play all over those records, but Al really wasn't involved in those records at all. So just another thing that would push Dave farther away and, you know, really, you know, help to build that resentment for his former band. The Beach Boys were really, really popular and were getting lots of questions about what happened to Dave Marks from a lot of their fans. Hmm. And they all had different answers. Um, they were all usually kind of political, witty answers that, you know, were jokey. Um, you know, some of them said that a young man's gone was about Dave after he died in a car accident. Um, Brian said that he died in a surfing accident. 
and um, you know they they just kind of dismissed him and uh, instead of really saying that he quit the group. You know, it's interesting that you say that they kind of came up with all these kind of wisecracks or whatever about what happened to him. Yeah. And and at the time, that might have kind of seemed a little harsh or whatever. But if you really think about it, in a way, it does sound a lot better than saying, oh, he quit. Yeah. And that may have saved him a little face. During early 1966, David was playing a weekly stint um, at the Sea Witch nightclub in Hollywood. Yeah, one night he stepped outside after playing a gig, and um, this street kid came up to him who was wearing these like pirate pants, as he called it, these striped pants. And um, it was a face that he'd seen before, and it was, it was a guy named Rodney Bingenheimer. Wow. And he would later become one of L.A.'s premier DJs and eventually be known as the mayor of Sunset Strip. Rodney on the Rock. And in 1966, Rodney held no such label. He was just some guy who hung out around the edges of Hollywood. But for David, he proved to be the key holder to another universe. So he was the first one that gave David a small orange capsule that really sent David down a dark spiral. Um, and that was LSD. At the time, David had only been drinking and hadn't done any hallucinogenics or cocaine or heroin at all. But um, this was kind of the beginning of the end as David was already a very susceptible young kid who was looking for anything to kind of numb the pain of yeah. all the you know early rigors of being a touring musician and being kind of, you know, thrown around in Hollywood for a couple of years. It was bad news, though, as we all know. Um, it just led to other things. But um, that was the beginning of it, for sure. It was during this time that he would make friends with the male singer in a duo called Lime and Cybell, a guy who would go on to use his own name upon David's uh, request, and his name was Warren Zevon. Big Warren fan. Love it. So Warren was writing some B-sides for the Turtles. And yep. uh, David had another opportunity in 1966, just as the Turtles were reaching peak popularity. It was right after their smash single, Happy Together, was rising the charts. And, um, you know, Mark Volman, the Turtles vocalist, called David and pleaded with him to fly out immediately to join them on tour to play guitar and sing. And Dave got really excited and thought right away, this is my chance to get back in the limelight. He started packing his bags, and just as he was heading out, he got another call saying that it was a false alarm and he could forget it. Mark Volman and David actually became really good friends and stayed friends for many years. But that was just another missed opportunity that you can add to the list. It's tough, man. Just some of my favorite groups that David was almost part of. I mean, that's pretty mind-blowing. But it goes to show you that L.A. scene of the 60s was a tight-knit group of people. David was hanging out with Warren Zevon one day, and this is another great story from that book. And um, they were strolling down the Sunset Strip, and they saw Brian's car, or Dave recognized Brian's car. 
And he said, oh, man, he must be down in the Western Studios recording something. And Warren, you know, kind of peaked up. Warren was a huge fan of the Beach Boys and said, hey, can we go meet him? Can we go in? And David said, yeah, I guess, why not? You know, let's go check it out. So they went in there, and um, Brian's in there alone with an assistant engineer just tweaking some track. And um, he says, hey, Dave. And as he always says, how's your mom? And uh, Dave told Brian that she was fine. Then he introduced an awestruck Warren Zevon to him. And uh, then Brian was just, you know, working on a tune. So he played them this little part of a track. And he said it was only like 30 seconds long. And it was hard to tell what it was or what it was going to be. But um, it made an impression on them. And then months later, they heard the track on the radio. And uh, the song was Good Vibrations. Yeah. Pretty awesome little story. Some lucky, lucky ears that day. Oh yeah. You know, I, one thing I I read was that you know related to Warren Zevon and David's relationship, they were they were very close friends, and they were even roommates for almost a decade. Yep. Um, which is pretty awesome. Um, if you don't know Warren Zevon's music, Beach Boys fans, uh, little known fact: my favorite Warren Zevon song is a song called "Desperados Under the Eaves" that features none other than Carl Wilson and Billy Hinchy on those tracks. So, some cool Beach Boy connections. Obviously, Warren was a fan. Very cool tidbit. So next up for David's mini projects was joining Terry Hand from the ever-present Fullness and Garrett Moore on keyboards and future bird John York on bass in a group called the Tender Trap. They didn't really have any recordings and they dissolved quickly. So David's association with Mike Curb led him to the next musical adventure, which was probably his most creative one during his up-and-down career. Um, This was a Matt Moore project from Matthew Moore Plus Four. He was a keyboard player. He joined David, who was the arranger, guitarist, and co-vocalist, and um, they formed a group called The Moon. Um, The Moon was a very Beatles-influenced psychedelic pop and rock group that had two records, and I think there's some really cool stuff on there. And it really surprised me when I first heard that David Marks was part of this group because I had heard it years ago, not knowing anything about the lineup. Somebody sent me a track, and um, I fished out these albums and really, really got into it. And uh, I think it's really cool stuff and very different than what I would expect from David Marks. But he was a big Beatles fan, and he became really involved in all the psychedelic music of the late 60s after Sgt. Pepper's and Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, All these bands were kind of jumping on this style and trying to ride that wave. Oh, there's the rains 
tune from the moon that kind of brings David into another project is a song called Brother Lou's Love Colony, which we've kind of been playing in the background here a little bit. Um, it's actually a song by Dalton and Montgomery, which had a band called Colors, um, and they released a couple of records, and their second album actually called Atmospheres features a lot of lead guitar by David Marks. So for a couple of years, you know, that was, you know, David's thing. He was playing guitar with the guys from Colors, playing on their record, uh, you know, kind of doing the session guitarist thing. But when Colors broke up in 69, it kind of it again without an outlet, without a project, until... He joined up as a backup guitarist with Delaney and Bonnie uh, in the group aptly titled Delaney, Bonnie, and Friends, um, which, as we know, was a great uh, kind of jammy, folky, country rock, blues rock band of the late 60s that had a lot of famous members as backing guitarists, including Eric Clapton. Very cool. Yeah. George Harrison also played with them too. So pretty rad. So another kind of cool thing after he was doing the Delaney and Bonnie stuff is he landed more session work, which we kind of missed. We've kind of seen a pattern here that he's getting more into the session world. And he gets to work with Jim Keltner, Carl Rattle, and associates Danny Moore and Gary Montgomery who we already spoke about, from Colors. So his Colors connection actually opened up some really cool gigs for him and a lot of brushes with greatness. So pretty excellent that he was involved. I, you know, I didn't really know that he was involved in that stuff until, you know, we did this research and you dove into that book and pulled some of that stuff out. So it's really great to connect the dots here on David kind of surfing, if you will, through this really awesome world of psychedelic and blues rock of the late 60s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the early 70s, Dave decided that he had had enough of California and got the idea to move to Boston and start taking classes at Berkeley School of Music. So he heads out to Boston with his girlfriend at the time, and once they get out there, he finds out that they that he is ineligible to enroll in Berkeley because he never finished high school. So he kind of started going to classes in an unofficial capacity. His girlfriend ends up leaving him, and he's again kind of feeling like a loner and doesn't really have a lot of direction. And he's doing these classes every now and then, and working on his classical guitar techniques and writing some songs that are more chamber pop or, you know, classical oriented. Um, he does one day see a poster for a concert coming up in Boston and it's the Beach Boys. So he thinks, you know, maybe I'll go check it out. Why not? He goes to the show and he's watching the show from the audience and he said it felt really strange and um, he decided to, to just get out of there. It just wasn't feeling feeling nostalgic he was more just getting depressed and uh as he was leaving Man, he was stopped in the lobby by dennis wilson who had left stage after seeing him and spotting him in the in the crowd and um dave was like what are you doing down here and he's like oh it's fine we got another drummer now <laughs> and uh classic 
they catch up after a few minutes and then Dennis br- drags him backstage and says, look, you got to go on stage with us. You got to talk to the guys. You got to play a song with us. And he reluctantly agrees. And the guys are all happy to see him. And he comes out and plays an encore with them and they announce him as David Marks and everybody kind of, you know, gives him a round of applause. And he reluctantly plays along with Surfer Girl with his guitar turned down. But, you know, it was good to see the guys. And um, after the show, he hung out with them for a little bit and got to talking about the old days. And Mike kind of announces to him, hey, we need to meet you for breakfast tomorrow. I've got something very important to tell you. So the next day, he meets up with Dennis and Mike for breakfast at the hotel. And Mike tells him, Dave, you got to sell your Porsche and give all the money to the Maharishi. And uh, Dave thought, what are you talking about? This is insane. And Mike was like, no, this guy is the answer. This is the way. You have to do it. It's the key to happiness. And it's the key to the universe. <laughs> and, you know, Love it. Dave is, is, is like, no, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. And then Mike also says, I also want you to consider coming back to California and joining the Beach Boys again. And Dave says, well... Thank you for the offer. I will think about it. And it was very flattering for David and being in kind of a place of uncertainty again. I think he did uh, go through with the initiation of the Maharishi, but he did not sell his Porsche. Smart move. So after a few weeks of talking to Mike and uh, his old friend, Mark Volman, he felt like it was time to head back west. So... After several weeks of traveling, he finally returned to Los Angeles. And uh, he was actually met with some really bad news. His father, Elmer, had seriously mismanaged the Hollywood apartment building that Dave had bought with his royalty money back in 1967, which was supposed to be kind of his safety nest. Wow. His father was discriminating against people that wanted to rent it and it was in the middle of Hollywood but he wouldn't rent it to anyone because he didn't like anyone his father said uh, no musicians no blacks no actors so it was very hard to actually rent out the rooms and they couldn't pay taxes on the building so they lost it so this was really bad news for David's kind of um, nest egg so this pushed him even further towards rejoining the Beach Boys Carl uh, was more reluctant to let him back in the band, but Mike really wanted him in. And I I think that's because Mike wanted to move towards the old sound and become more of a a surf rock and, you know, old school rock and roll band and Mm kind of get back to their roots. And Dave was a good way of doing that. And the band was slowly progressing more towards the sound of Carl Wilson and Dennis Wilson. Yeah. And um, as you can tell on the on the Surfs Up album, um, they were moving in a di- much different direction than I think Mike was really anticipating. Oh yeah, it you know it took some convincing for him. I think maybe at this point, you know, he'd been a session guitar player and you know kind of had some brushes with greatness through that world, and uh, you know, so I could see at first he might have been a little apprehensive to kind of rejoin that old thing that didn't end very well first time um right so david shows up to practice and carl wilson's there with a bass and says this is the condition if you want back in the band you're going to be the bassist so let's go over help me Rhonda." 
Dave reluctantly starts playing and realizes quickly that this is ridiculous and decides that he's not a bass player and that after studying classical guitar and being a session musician and working on his skills as a guitarist for so many years, it's ridiculous for him to play behind guitarists like Al Jardine and Carl Wilson, who he believes are far inferior guitarists to himself. So he goes into the other room and starts playing pool with Brian. And uh, (laughs) David spent the rest of the day with the boys, but he refrained from playing any more music with them. Interesting. On April 14th of that year, the Beach Boys appeared at the Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset Strip. David joined them on stage for a part of their set, playing some oldies. And um, he was still deciding if he was going to rejoin the group. And he uh, was, was asked to sit in with the audience and eventually they would invite him up on stage to play some songs. So he played a few of the old hits and it didn't just, it didn't really feel right to him. He was just going through the motions, but he was happy to finally have, have a chance to play the whiskey because he had never had that chance. And it's a legendary club. So later that month, he informed the beach boys. He wasn't interested in a job. He thanked them for the offer and he wished them well. And David got the distinct impression that Mike was very disappointed, but Carl was fine with it. Carl told David it didn't really matter because they already had a guy they liked named Ed Carter who could play the guitar and the bass very well. So David was actually pretty relieved that it didn't work out because he didn't really want to go back to that situation. Yeah, and that's that's pretty wild. Um, I mean, Ed Carter was and is a great bass player, a great guitar player. I do think it's interesting. I really like kind of and agree with what you were saying about how maybe it was a way for, you know, Mike to try to recapture some of the early feeling to kind of rejuvenate the group. Cause I think at this time they were really trying to figure out what they could do to either move their career forward, rejuvenate their career, ignite some fire. So they were probably just at a point where they were really trying to do anything they could to shake it up a little bit and kind of break them out of a slump with in terms of chart success because yeah during this period whether they had chart success or not they were really firing on all cylinders in terms of some of their best material as band i mean yeah dave was really making his living off of his royalties from the um the time that he was actually in the group he was getting a six-month royalty check and um he was living basically royalty check to royalty check three months he would live like a king and then three months he would live in poverty because he was just really bad at Mm -hmm. handling the money and he was also a drug and alcohol addict Mm. tough so very sad state of affairs and it really kept him from keeping a steady job because as soon as he got that royalty royalty check it would all just like crumble away and his addictions would take over yeah in an interview with John Tobler of Zigzag Magazine at the peak of the Brian's Back Mania, Mike Love was asked about David Marks. He is sorely neglected and unjustly so, for he's a fine gentleman, a nice person, and he's also studied classical music at a music school in Boston. Now he's back on the West Coast, doing what? I don't know, because I haven't talked to him for the last couple of years. Despite Mike Love's well-documented, sinister side, of all the Beach Boys, he was probably the kindest to David. From the time he joined the band to the present, Mike Love has consistently shown that he's had a soft spot for David. 
Mike was the only one who ever bothered to track David down through the years and call just to see if he needed anything, and it was Mike who tried a couple of times to get David back into the band. This is all from Carrie Marks, David's wife. Remember, when they left for their first tour back in 1962, Elmer, David's dad, took Mike aside and told him that since he was the oldest, he had to look after David. I really do believe Mike has taken that to heart and as much as he's capable of doing. So I really loved that little quote. It seems pretty pretty evident that Mike really took that to heart and just felt obligated to check up on his friend from time to time and just to try to help him. I think that's pretty cool. Um, that's a great, great story. So... The reason I think that's so interesting is because much later in the 90s, when Mike sued Brian Wilson for not being credited on 30 different songs that Mike wrote lyrics for, um, David actually came to testify on Mike's behalf. And Dave said he spent his last $10 to pay for parking so he could go testify for Mike to win $5 million. But he was glad to do it because people should know the truth. Mike is not an insignificant part of the Beach Boys. It was Murray's doing in the first place. Murray screwed a lot of people out of their rightful credit. Rumor has it that Brian wanted to settle with Mike anyway instead of dragging it into court, but his lawyers wouldn't let him. A federal jury ruled in Mike's favor on 12 December 1994. Eight days later, Brian and Mike agreed on a $5 million settlement, and a percentage of future royalties on 35 Beach Boys songs was awarded to Mike. So I thought that was an awesome kind of way to, to help Mike Mike out after years of kind of looking after David. Those guys always seemed like they had their backs, you know. Yeah. So back to the late 70s, David shows up at the offices of Capitol Records one day to collect his six-month royalty check. And David was used to it being about $7,000 to $15,000, depending on how well the Beach Boys' back catalog was selling. There were a few cases when the checks were even exceeding that range, like the period immediately following the release of Endless Summer, when they rose beyond thirty grand. But this time, things would be different. Even though the Beach Boys played to as many as 500,000 fans at a time during their yearly 4th of July concerts, they had lost most of their artistic credibility due to a string of weak LP releases. Unbeknown to David, the Beach Boys' yearly record sales were experiencing a severe downturn. When David arrived at Capitol in summer of 1981, he was broke as usual. They said, sorry we gave you too much last time. You don't get one now. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what? Um, so that was a real big blow to him. And um, after surviving the next six months he received a small royalty check from capital and he and his girlfriend at the time used the money to rent a home in redondo beach in the spring of 82 their daughter was born his girlfriend disappeared soon after and left david with a young child so dave moved back in with his mom and she helped him raise his daughter um, a few years later he had gone through aa and some recovery programs and was seemingly on the right track. Um, he started working as he had several opportunities to join up with uh, Mike Love and his side project, the Endless Summer Band, and fill in as a guitarist um, with other Beach Boys related family friends, such as Billy Henshee and Jeff Foskett. 
In September of 1996, David flew out to Las Vegas upon Mike Love's request to stay with the Beach Boys entourage at the Rio Hotel Casino. Dave says, Mike called me and said, we're going to be playing in Vegas. Why don't you come out and hang out with us? When I got there, Carl asked me to play part of the show with them, but I still didn't want to, and instead I just watched the concert. Still, the fanfare, the excitement, the buzz around being in the Beach Boys scene was an emotionally intoxicating experience. Yeah. And unfortunately, after more than eight years of sobriety, this would be the day that David's fundamental weakness took advantage of him again. And off the wagon, he crashed. Soon after that, um, Carl started to get ill. In a major power play, Mike decided to take on the business procedures of the Beach Boys concerts himself. So in the process, Al became marginalized and estranged from both Mike and Carl. Reportedly, Mike felt betrayed by Al, and from that point on, Al's days in the group were numbered. Ironically, Al pointed out in recent interviews that Mike was originally interested in eliminating Bruce from the Beach Boys. However, since he couldn't make do without both of them, Bruce survived the upheaval. Wherever the truth lies, it is known that Carl Wilson had virtually given Mike free reign to make changes. So, around this time, Dave was asked to join the group again. Mm. David was finally sold on the idea of rejoining the Beach Boys when he was told that Carl would be coming back to play with him soon. Everybody assumed Carl was going to get better, and that's one of the biggest reasons I wanted to come back, says David. I completely expected to be sharing the stage with Carl again. It was not meant to be. So David played one warm-up gig with Mike's Endless Summer Band in San Bernardino with Jan and Dean and the Safaris sharing the bill. And then within a few days, he was on a plane to Florida for his first show with the second tour of the Beach Boys. It almost didn't happen because the airline threatened to bar David from boarding the plane because he was so drunk. Jeez, man. Mike pulled him aside after landing and said, you will not be like Dennis. Mike explained to him how the universe took Dennis out and that he didn't want to see the same thing happen to to Dave. That was Mike's way of showing genuine concern. Unfortunately... Dave didn't listen very seriously. On September 25th in Miami, Dave took the stage as an official Beach Boy again after 34 years' absence. The regular lineup when David took the stage again was Mike Love, Al Jardine, Bruce Johnston, Sidemen, Mike Kowalski, Mike Morose, Phil Bardowell, Chris Farmer, Richie Kanata, and Al's son, Matt Jardine. The Beach Boys also featured a well-known guest percussionist, John Stamos. Carl was still expected to return once he recovered. And when Dave first went back to the Beach Boys, Carl was just too sick to tour, and Al was still in the band. After the first couple of shows Dave played, it became obvious that he was back in the band and was not just sitting in for a gig or two like he had in the past. When this became apparent to Al, he took David aside and asked him point-blank, Why are you back? What is going on? David was not privy to all the political moves that had been already brewing for over a year. Dave says, By the way Al asked me that question, I sensed he was real concerned. Al probably knew exactly what was happening behind the scenes, but I didn't. I told him I was simply there to play with the band as long as it worked out for everybody. Al wasn't pleased by this reply and answered very tersely, Well, I guess that's it, isn't it? The whole thing's over. Al stomped off in a huff. (laughs) it's just so interesting that you know al replaces david 30 something years of 
before, and then David replaces Al in the 90s. Yeah. This is like a, you know, just a strange game of cards. It is. It's, it is. And, you know, Mike's the puppet master here, I guess. Yeah, he took over for Murray. You know, Carl actually came around um, in his illness and uh, was much more gracious to have Dave back. Carl sent a message to Dave through the Beach Boys sound man saying that he was pleased that David was back with the Beach Boys and playing guitar on stage with them again. David said, that made me feel great because I'd never really been forgiven by Carl for quitting and acting like an immature idiot as a 15-year-old. I never was really sure deep down if Carl still resented me for that. So yeah, in that December, Carl fought for his life and Audrey Wilson passed away. In January, David, Mike, Bruce, John Stamos, and Glenn Campbell performed during the pregame show of the Super Bowl and they were billed as America's Band. This is very strange. I guess they were going through some legal stuff with Al. Yeah. And weren't sure if they could use the Beach Boys name. I think I've seen some photos from that performance. Some pretty awesome choices of pants. <laughs> um, uh, and reportedly the first time Al knew about it was when it was on TV. So within months, Al was officially out of the Beach Boys. Dave says, I was there for a purpose, a political move. I was unaware of that at the time, of course, and I'm not complaining because it did me a world of good, but I regret having inadvertently been the cause of Al's demise. But I think that it was inevitable anyway. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, Mike wanted total control, and anybody that was going to stand in his way, Mike was going to fight it. And, um, you know, I think Al just was ready to, you know, move on from Mike Love's regime at that point, and Dave was ripe for it. Dave needed the money and was ready to start playing again. So it just worked out. I think it was for the best. Yeah, it's a total bummer, though, because Al Jardine is a mighty force to be reckoned with. He is. He's a vocal monster, as we know. Gosh, just a machine. Um, so moving on. To some sad parts here in our Beach Boys history that we haven't really discussed yet, but on February 6, 1998, after battling cancer, Carl Wilson finally said goodbye at 6 a.m., and uh, Mike was the one that called David, and all he said was, Cousin Carl's died. Such a Mike bummer. was in tears, and David said... I thought it was very natural, but then he said, pardon the emotion, which I thought was strange. It's as if under those circumstances, Mike was still guarding his emotions while he was fighting his tears. I said, it's okay, Mike. I understand. And that was it. Few words were spoken. He hung up the phone and I lay there alone knowing that Carl was gone. I'm getting choked up about it, man. <laughs> Thinking about my boy, Carl. Uh, um, but yeah. Super sad. Um, It's a real bummer for Dave that he didn't get to share the stage with him again after he got so pumped about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, to kind of... Those guys, you know, went through a lot when they were just kids. I mean, they were the two youngest in the band. And, you know, those guys kind of were, well, in a way, robbed of a normal childhood and growing up and adolescence because of the success they experienced together. And I feel like... You know, with this, you know, kind of wrap it around full 
circle in this this part of the story here that in a way not just because of the money but you know i think david wanted to reconnect with carl on stage like you were talking about because it would kind of bring back some stability maybe bring him back to a time in his life when he you know things were a little more together so definitely uh you know, it was probably really tough for him to not ever really get that. And it, and it just kind of locks into the thing that's been kind of the theme of this entire episode is just a lot of missed opportunities and a lot of almosts. Yeah. So it's very, it's very tough to, it's very tough to, if you're putting yourself in those shoes, it's not a real happy, bright and sunny thing like the music of the Beach Boys. Cause, and that's kind of also another recurring theme of this band as we'll get more into the further we go. But, you know, behind the, the peace and the love and the joy and the happiness and the fun and the sun, there were a lot of sure heavy, heavy things these guys dealt with to bring that music to their fans. David's last show with the Beach Boys on his second tour of duty was on July 4th, 1999. And uh, he wasn't fired and he didn't really quit, but one day he just kind of stopped showing up, he said. So he needed to get clean and he went back to rehab. And, uh, you know, for a few years he struggled with um, sobriety. In December of 1999, David married his wife, Carrie. And the same day, he went to the hospital with what he thought was an inflamed liver. The pain was actually emanating from a rib injury. There was other bad news, though. He was diagnosed with hepatitis C, which was a liver disease, and he was given six months or less to live if he continued drinking. So that was the final straw, and he quit drinking. He became a spokesperson for the Gastroenterological Association and um, did a lot of work for them to help spread... uh, hepatitis c awareness and um i thought that was really awesome and it seems like you know since then he's been performing a lot of music with some various beach boys related groups um working with beach boys sidemen and playing shows you know as a solo artist and all that stuff um and then of course in 2012 the beach boys reunited all the living members for the 2012 50th anniversary reunion tour Mm -hmm. as well as uh to record that's why god made the radio which features dave on guitar yep and i got to see them on the 50th tour and it was awesome and you know a thing that definitely stood out was he took a lot of carl's leads and from all the early records and played all the surf guitar licks in the show and I have to think that obviously it was a great moment for him to be up there celebrating the band's legacy and playing guitar, great guitar, like he was playing on those shows. But also I know he was definitely doing that in tribute to his former guitar slinger, Carl. So it's pretty cool that he got to be part of that and had a few cool lead vocals on the show I saw and he was just ripping up. He was playing a, fender jaguar that they were especially done for those shows for them um oh yeah so i mean get you back yeah he was rocking get you back while kicking out some jams on some uh all the surf guitar solos as well so it was really awesome great show yeah man i think you know um 
there's a couple other things that he's done since then and more recently like he played on brian's recent solo record as well yeah he played some real tasty licks on no peer pressure and what i think is maybe my personal favorite highlight of the album which is the right time super cool track and uh i guess that's about it um there's a lot more to find out about if you guys want to check out the book the lost beach boy by john stebbins thanks very much john what a great book what great research and uh what a great story so glad that david marks made it through all those tough times and uh was able to kind of redeem himself as a beach boy and uh we look forward to talking more about david marks as we make it through this journey and he creeps back in every once in a while so we'll see you guys next week uh we're gonna be on the road with the band so i'm not really sure what the episode's gonna be yet but we will be back soon and uh thanks always for listening and thanks to will c for the music we will catch you guys next time sail on sailors <laughs>